Let's continue to worship, and as we do, let's join our hearts together in prayer. Creator God, we confess this day to engaging in habits that diminish the bounty of your creation. Not satisfied with the goodness of your holy temple, your seas and mountains, your rain and soil, we have fashioned a system of sustenance that seems good to us. We hunger for things that will not satisfy. You prepare a table before us, even in the presence of our enemies. You give us a drink from your spring of living water, and we should thirst no more. Hunger is the metaphor for all our appetites. And food and drink, a picture of our source of sustenance, the things we cannot go without what we choose to take in, what we choose to eat, reveals what we have built our lives to need. Yet we hunger and thirst most deeply for things that cannot satisfy fully. And we are on our way to death. Be merciful to us, for we have sinned. If we would just feast on that which fills, we will truly live. God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find real rest in you. Good Jesus, at your feast of compassion is everything we need. At your table is welcome. At your cross, saving grace. You, our King, are already full of love for us, and you give us what we need. We come to you seeking, but we find your open hands ready to receive us. The truest thing about us is that we are loved by you completely. We know this because you gave yourself to be broken and poured out, all for love, all for us. You sent your Son, gave him to the world, gave him over to death. We are invited to share in your suffering, in your blessing, in your table, in your death, in your resurrection, in your feast. So God, we choose not to write our own story. We choose not to satisfy ourselves with anything but you. We come to your communion table not just to remember the past, but to remember the future. We gather to feast on the imagination of Christ, to see what he saw in us, to fill our minds with the sights and sounds and smells of heaven. Lord Jesus, we are yours. Take us and bless us. Break us. Give us. Take our story and make it sacred. Make it more than what it is without you. Amen.
Good morning. It's been a privilege so far to worship with you today. And as we continue in this time of worship, we now turn to these words of Scripture, building on this theme that we've been uh, exploring over the last few months together. Three good verbs. Uh, this was not the appointed or planned for experience this weekend. Uh, one of our ministers, unfortunately, who was scheduled to preach this weekend is home isolating because of the C word. Uh, we don't say it out loud anymore. But as he isolates, of course, we pray uh, that he and his family remain safe and healthy. And as we continue in this time of worship, we do so reflecting together on words that define in many ways not only the life and ministry of Jesus, but also our lives, our ministries out here in the world. We turn today to Mark's gospel, chapter 14, and we'll be reading verses 17 through 25. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table, eating, he said, Truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one, they said to him, Surely, you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had never been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. May God bless the reading and the hearing of the word today. Last week, at the end of the service, we celebrated together the decision that one among us had made to take a step forward to publicly acknowledge his own trust in Jesus and to request from this church the opportunity to be baptized. And we celebrated the ways God was going to work in Nathan's life. And I saw the looks on your faces as I presented him and you knew the significance of what it was he was saying. And in many ways, as so often happens, in times like that, I'm not sure you remember what I preached about anymore, but, but you remember that experience of welcoming Nathan into this fellowship in a way that is indivisible. And we can anticipate together what it will be like to witness his baptism in the next couple of weeks. We like baptism here, not just because we're Baptists, but because baptism 
in many ways tells a story that goes far beyond that one moment in time in the life and with the body of one believer. Baptism is a sermon in and of itself with very few words, if any, at all. I very often tell those uh, who are baptized here, people probably will not remember what I preached about. They won't remember the color of my tie. They may not remember what they have for breakfast, but they'll never forget the sermon that you preach with your body this morning. As you reenact the life, the death, and burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, you are telling the story that matters most. You are preaching the sermon we all need to hear over and over again. It is a reminder of our salvation. And our baptism is a mark of our initiation into a community. It tells us of our participation in Jesus' own life and death and his resurrection. And it tells us of our vocation, of our calling to go into the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus' great commission. All of that is wrapped up in a seemingly innocent and simple act. A sermon that goes on and on, inspiring and filling our lives and our work with new meaning. When we remember our own baptism, we can remember all of those things. And we are inspired to share that transforming love of God with others. And today we hear another story of a seemingly simple moment. Mackenzie reenacted it for us in a sense with donuts. And I think if Jesus and his disciples happen to find an upper room at Dunkin' Donuts or Krispy Kreme, we might be arguing today in church, you know, the Baptists only use glazed donuts and the Catholics only use stuffed donuts. Or Who knows? But in small ways throughout our lives, we know the gift of time at the table. And this was a special table, of course, where Jesus and his Jewish friends were gathering, now celebrating Passover. And as they celebrate that Passover re meal, remembering God's salvation of God's people, the emancipation of people from slavery in Egypt so long ago, he sees this as an opportunity now to declare his own journey, his own mission, his own future in the breaking of bread and in the sharing of the cup. But even more, it is a sermon for the disciples. It's going to tell them not only of their salvation, but their initiation, their participation, and their vocation out in the world. For what happens at that table time the taking, the receiving of the bread and putting it under blessing, the breaking of the bread and the giving of those elements, that becomes the template. It becomes the paradigm for our own life in Christ, individually and collectively, as a body. And so the more I reflect on what happens whenever we share 
that meal formally and ritually around this table or even when we share a meal at table time with family, with our family of faith, among friends. It has the potential to bear some of that same witness of how God would have us be in the world. Because the way we share that meal can give us great insight into the inner workings of God as we take break and as we give we begin to feel the pulse the rhythm of the universe the world as god would have it the real world and so that meal that jesus celebrates is a way of telling us how jesus operates in our church how god operates through jesus to lead us where god would have us to go it tells us how we are to be in relationship with one another. It tells us what it means to be a Christian, this taking under blessing and breaking and giving. And so not only does it concern what it is we do with our things and our time, we take and receive what we have as gifts from God. We acknowledge them as gifts. We put them under blessing. And we offer them up to God with gratitude, and we break them. We take risks with them. We divide up what we have. And whenever we divide up what we have, we become a bit more vulnerable. And as imperfect as we all may be, putting it under the blessing gives us the power to give it away, to share with others so that they might also take and receive these gifts under blessing, break them, and give them again. So whether it happens around this table, whether it happens around any table that you share with friends, with families, even with strangers, remembering our lives as those that are taken, that are broken, that are given, is at the heart of our Christian life. It's at the heart of our Christian witness. And so I want us to reflect today on those three verbs, taking, breaking, and giving, and consider how they tell us what we might even mean when we say something like, I believe in Jesus Christ, or I love the Lord. I want to follow Jesus. Taking. It's a marvelous statement when you think about it. If we were ever to make that declaration that we are taken, we are received by God, that's a statement about how God chooses to be with us. That we are chosen. It's one of the reasons that adoption is used as something of a powerful metaphor to talk about our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. More than one occasion, I've heard a testimony from uh, from a child who's entered into a household by adoption and for some reason in their life, either they have personal misgivings or there are voices among their peers or others who make them feel somehow less than because they weren't natural born into their household. And to a one, and I'm not sure where adoptive parents get this language, but it is powerful. They say, well, you can just tell them that their parents had to take them as they are. I chose you. I chose you. That's a word from Jesus. 
to us. Henry Nouwen writes about it so beautifully. Long before any human being saw us, we were seen by God's loving eye. Long before anyone heard us cry or laugh, we are heard by God. And all is heard by God. Long before any person spoke to us in this world, we are spoken to by the voice of eternal love. It is that voice that spoke over Jesus at his baptism. This is my son, my beloved. We remembered yesterday at John Payne's funeral the voice of the Spirit that speaks over all who ache, who feel far from home, who are in exile that we find in Isaiah chapter 43. You are honored and you are precious in my sight and I love you. And so the relationships that we can share together are built on that chosenness. Being able to see the chosenness, the takenness of one another and a mutual affirmation of being precious in God's eyes. Jesus told his disciples, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and have appointed you that you would bear much fruit. We struggle sometimes with that word taken. We struggle sometimes with that word chosen because we believe that Somehow in being chosen, it's a zero-sum game. I had a birthday a couple of weeks ago, and those of you who are with me on social media saw the picture of the amazing cake that Janelle made for my birthday. And I and my children enjoyed that cake, my birthday celebration, when they got back from Cheerio. And then before I went to bed, I cut off another slice, and I put it in a container, and I put it in the fridge under penalty of great pain if anybody opened it but me. Because I had a sense that the rest of that cake was just going to go away. And we want to protect those special things that we have, like love, God's blessing, our chosenness, because we think it's like cake. And once it gets eaten up, it's all gone. But just because our chosenness becomes real to us and we can claim that chosenness makes no statement about anyone else in this room or this world. God's love is not cake. And it will not run away. We do not need to hide it. We do not need to sequester it. We need to claim it. And begin to lead others to claim their belovedness, their chosenness, their takenness, in the life and in the heart of God. Everything in our spiritual life begins by making that claim and recognizing that it is not because of who we are, but because of who God is and how God's love works. And when that chosenness, that takenness is put under blessing, then we discover there is great capacity to do as God would have us to do and to be who God would have us to be in this world. And the hard news that's just as difficult to hear as chosenness is not my right or my privilege or my corner of the market is that our lives are put to work when they are broken. It's a crucial element to all this. In the pattern 
of Jesus at the table as well as in our lives. Brokenness is difficult. We're so happy to receive just about every gift from God and we're thankful for it. We can live grateful lives, but if it ends there where we have somehow insulated ourselves in, in, in some sort of safe bubble, we are not reflecting the way of Christ. Because there is no giving. There is no true blessing or sharing. We can't become truly generous until we reflect the one who is crucified. In worship, in the study of worship, they have a technical word for when the bread is broken. It's called the fraction. From which we get the word fracture. Paging Dr. Bynum. I don't know if he's in the room. But you orthopedists know exactly what it looks like and what it sounds like. Without the breaking, without the tear, without the sacrifice, without yielding and finally letting go, our lives remain only unto themselves. Think about another shared meal that we find in Scripture. This one's in Luke 24, where some confused folks are making their way back on the road to Emmaus, after hearing not only the trauma of Jesus' crucifixion, but hearing the confusing new announcement that Jesus was no longer in his tomb and was appearing to his disciples. They're puzzling over this. A stranger comes alongside them, begins asking what they're talking about. You might know how the story goes. He begins to explain to them how all of these things in Jesus' life needed to come to pass, walking them through Scripture. Finally, he's invited around a table still a stranger to them. And as they begin to share that meal, this guest becomes a host. He takes bread, he blesses it, and when he breaks it, that's when they see Jesus. That's when they recognize him in the breaking. Because it was in the breaking that Jesus was able to give his life, to pour it out to give it away to you, to the person who's beside you, to those who aren't even here this morning. We wouldn't be able to receive him. We wouldn't be able to receive a part of his life unless it were broken. The broken Lord, the broken Savior. It's hard to say, but the longer I live, the more I believe that Christ is known, not only in his brokenness, but also in our broken places. Not only there, to be sure, but I think especially there. And you know what I mean when I say broken places. You've all been there. It's easy to miss Christ's presence when we are in a broken place, internally, in a broken relationship, certainly in a broken world. We want to hide from those things because the pain is undeniable and sometimes overwhelming. But it is there that we find Christ especially present. And those who live those safe and predictable and conventional lives that avoid anything that risks breaking, that threatens us, those are the ones that tend to cover up the brokenness when it inevitably comes with smiles, with platitudes, with undoing fine. But when we do that, we also miss out on the joy and the grace and the blessing 
that comes when we risk being honest, when we make ourselves vulnerable, when we risk being generous, when we risk creating a new opportunity for others to live and receive the gifts of God. Our brokenness can really look different when it's caught under the blessing of our chosenness from our takenness. Again, I want to read a little excerpt from Henry Nouwen's beautiful book, Life of the Beloved. And he says, I recall a scene from Leonard Bernstein's Mass, a musical work that was written in memory of John F. Kennedy that embodied for me the thought of brokenness put under blessing. Toward the end of his work, the priest, richly dressed in splendid liturgical vestments, is lifted up by the people. He towers high above the adoring crowd, carrying in his hand a glass chalice, and suddenly the human pyramid collapses and the priest comes tumbling down. His vestments are ripped off, his glass chalice falls to the ground and is shattered, and as he walks slowly through the debris of his former glory, barefoot, wearing only blue jeans and a t-shirt, children's voices are heard singing, laude, 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 praise, praise, praise. Then the priest notices the broken chalice and looks at it for a long time. Haltingly, he says, I never realized that broken glass could shine so brightly. Claiming our brokenness does something to us. It forms us. It tells us as Christians that we are called to take risks, to render ourselves more vulnerable in love, to share with strangers, to give ourselves in love to the world with all of its injustices and to take the consequences. We're promised joy and celebration, but that's not a reward for having paid a price that's sufficiently high in our suffering. It's because to live a life that is vulnerable like that, that leans more and more faithfully to trust in God is itself the life of joy to which Jesus has called us. And it is in the breaking that we can be given. Some of the most beautiful moments in ministry that I've seen have shown me the spiritual power of generosity that comes even in a broken life. Yesterday, for those who were at the funeral, you may have heard one of the FedEx managers talking about how impactful it was after Barry lost her husband she made a call to him and said Randy are you okay when I was a chaplain at Duke Hospital years ago and I've shared this story before I was called in to preside uh, with a family over the withdrawal of life support from a cancer patient who was no longer medically going to be able to move forward. And the family had wanted a pastor there, and, and as I talked to the doctor ahead of time, uh, she said, there's, there's one thing I'm going to need you to do. Um, at the conclusion of all this, I want you to ask if they would be willing to donate uh, his corneas for transplant. And I thought that was a little tone deaf to the moment. They're about to say goodbye to a beloved father, husband, and everything else. Be that as it may, 
uh, this is in the back of my mind. And as I sit with this grieving family, uh, as they say their goodbyes, and as he breathes his last breath, the doctor is sort of in my ear again saying, I've got the donor services on the line. I'm going to need to know pretty soon whether or not this is something that we can do. Just, just tell them we need his eyes. We need his eyes. And so I pulled spouse aside and asked her, um, I've been asked to tell you uh, that we can use his cornea to help someone else to see. Uh, we need his eyes. Would you consent to harvesting those? And she started crying, just bawling. And I thought I had just taken a knife and stuck it into an already hurting heart, you know. And then eventually, as she wiped away her tears, she, they were tears of joy. She said, they told us that because of his cancer, there was nothing they would be able to use. Yes, 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 yes. I'm so glad there's a part of him that can help someone else. In the brokenness, there was giving beyond measure. The Grief Share Seminar, Surviving the Holidays, that's being uh, offered here at Yates, is being facilitated not by sterile or antiseptic people, objective, far from pain. Each one of those facilitators is a widow or a child or someone who has faced the worst day of their life and experienced the pain that so many of us carry in their grief. And what they've started to be able to do is not only identify the hope that they found through their journey, but the desire to share that in their brokenness with others. That's where ministry happens. When our lives taken under blessing, even when they become broken, become useful for God's good purposes of sharing the bread of life and hope for the world as we give, take, break, give. Jesus was chosen from all eternity, blessed in his baptism, broken on a cross, given as bread to the world. Being chosen and blessed and broken and given is a sacred journey that God makes with us. And it is a journey that we can make with God. That's the kind of life I really want to live. I don't always know how. And it's the kind of church I want us to be. I think it's the kind of church that Christ yearns for, not hopes for. That's too elusive. Yearns for. It's possible. It's not easy. But it is possible to be taken and broken and given church that's not afraid to take risks or be vulnerable, to be challenged, to be uncomfortable, to be uneasy in order to experience more of the joy and the celebration that comes from Christ and Christ's grace working through us. A church that's willing to be vulnerable in love, that will risk being broken and entering into broken places that the true good news of salvation can be given. And when we live that way in all that we do, I think we'll begin to recognize Jesus more and more in one another. When we do that in all that we can do, we can recognize Jesus at work in one another. 
And I believe that people will be able to recognize Jesus in us, too. May it be. May it be so. May it be now. Amen.